Helo a chroeso i bodlediad yr Academy Genedlaethol ar gyfer arweinyddiaeth a ddysgol yng Nghymru. Podlediad sy'n rhannu materion ac arferion arweinyddiaeth allweddol ar draws y sector addysg yma yng Nghymru ac yn rhyngwladol. Hello and welcome to the podcast from the National Academy for Educational Leadership in Wales, a podcast that shares key leadership issues and practices across the education sector here in Wales and internationally. I'm Emma Coates and I'm an Academy Associate with the Leadership Academy. This episode features Professor Michael Fullen, the former Dean of the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education and Professor Emeteris of the University of Toronto. He is co-leader of the New Pedagogies for Deep Learning Global Initiative. Recognised as a worldwide authority on educational reform, he advises policymakers, local leaders and school communities in helping to achieve the moral purpose of all children's learning. This podcast is from Series 3 of the Leadership Unlocked webinars. It's great to be with you in uh, a special way because I think the timing is, uh, in terms of your evolution, but also more generally what we're doing in so many different countries, including Canada, that it's almost, uh, the way I describe it, it's uh, just before just before hope starts to rise is the way I'm thinking of uh, hitting the ground running, if you want, if I can put it that way. Uh, the, uh, the work that... Uh, We've been doing, I, there's about 10 people involved in team, a team with me, two teams actually, uh, mostly based in Ontario, but we work in at least 10 different countries. Uh, I mean, continuous work, but also more. And it's uh, the, the foundation of our work since 2003, actually, when we worked in hand in hand with the government here to transform the system, is being that uh, 80, I put it this way, 80% of our best ideas come from leading practitioners. So we're very close to practice. Uh, there's almost nothing we do that's not in partnership with chunks of a system or a whole system uh, to decide what to do, to help work it through, to assess it, and then to build on it from there. So it's a running development, and it's very close to practice. And practice is uh, you know, very, you know, very close to theory, actually, when you look closely at it. The best practice is, as uh, Kurt Lewin said it this way, there's nothing so theoretical as good practice or, or so practical as good theory, I could say. So this is, uh, there's lots, here. it's not just me. And I hope that we will continue to stay in touch after we, uh, after today. I've been reading some of your background material. I know some of the history of the culture there uh, in terms of the educational uh, assumptions. So let's get into it. Let me then um, set the stage here. Uh, we all know the pandemic and I'm actually not going to present some of the uh, work that our team has done, I'll share it with you uh, later, about guidelines for as we leave the, the pandemic. So there's a small thing we've done that's really built on, um, basically, is what have people learned about the do's and don'ts of learning during the pandemic that we want to take forward, and that uh, that's what we will do. Uh, uh, but I think the way <clears throat> to describe it, as we say in this slide, there's no question, uh, the single best word is discombobulate just about everything we ever knew, not just in education, about about, about life. So this is really uh, what we uh, are, are facing, uh, that they really do give us an opportunity to change what has to be changed. And I'm going to move to some of this. If I frame it this way, I think you'll understand it, <clears throat> that uh, 
cumulatively, actually since 1980, which we'll come back to later, but let's just take the last uh, five or six years, is that the education system, everyone all over the world, uh, not even, even the high performers, uh, South Korea, Singapore, Shanghai, whatever, so-called high performers on PISA results, uh, that there's high anxiety and or uh, low progress, and that the system has really stalled from the point of view of teachers and especially students who find actually the majority of students, I say that accurately, don't find meaning and purpose in most of the things that they're facing in the current system, the status quo that we've had for a long time. So this has been, uh, was there before, but it's now the curtain is open, so to speak, and people have experienced uh, the good and bad of the system that was below the surface, but now has, uh, has come to the fore. And that in this, we see actually good and bad ideas. We see tendencies to uh, to uh, go, you know, have too much technology to actually reduce the, pri- the public school system in, fa- in face of uh, in favor of other developments. So there's a lot of bad vibes in there, but also, and I think this will be the upper hand we're trying to um, make happen. Uh, there are a lot of good ones, people who were doing good things or wanting to do good things in the in the previous system, but re- weren't really kind of pushed enough or helped enough. And now that potential is there. I call it the battle of the decade. I think it's a good, actually, this uh, in one of the analogies we used recently coming from uh, uh, one of the women um, economists, uh, Marianne Mazzucato. Uh, she uh, talks about mission economy changing capital, but and she uses the moonshot. She calls it the moonshot proposition. The, the President Kennedy, 1961, to actually took eight or nine years, not a decade. But this is equivalent now. We see this as hitting the ground running now, as of today, as of next month, and really transforming during the 20s, this time, the 2020s. So what we're facing, you know this, but I want to uh, summarize it in a nutshell, that, uh, and I've taken in this recent report, you have a copy of it because I think Teg sent it out, uh, uh, called uh, The Right Drivers for Whole System Reform. I've taken to using some adjectives, uh, nicknames, I call them, because they capture vividly, emotionally, what's happening. Uh, but the formal names, you see them here, of one cluster, climate collapse, galloping inequality, really, since 1980, uh, social trust, uh, fellow sociologist uh, Robert Putman from Harvard just did a really interesting book called Upswing. And came out a few months ago in Upswing. He traces, he and his co-author trace over the last uh, uh, hundred or more years, themes in the in, in U.S., U.S.-based data that show that it went through periods of what they call I-ness and we-ness. That is, there were periods of decades where people were self-centered. And then there were some periods where there was a concern to develop others, the collectivity, for example, 1950 to 1975 was one such period. And they they give us the information using the data and and surveys that social trust in the U.S., it's not hard to imagine this, but it's it's more widespread than this, has plummeted from 1968, where it was, let's say, uh, uh, close to 70%, to the present, where it's more like half of that, 30, 35%. Uh, Mental health and anxiety, we know that that's uh, accumulated. The next one is about the school system. I guess the kindest thing to say, and this is not a criticism of individuals, it's the system we've inherited and haven't shaken yet. Some people call it the grammar of schooling that's been with us almost 200 years. 
But it actually turns out that uh, students increasingly are having a hard time connecting and sensing purpose and meaning and connectedness, all those things I'll show you that are foundation of our work. So this is what we, uh, we're facing. These two themes I've just show, shown you are feeding on each other in a negative downward spiral. They're making it really uh, uh, much more difficult, but also much more likely that we have to do something. As a general state, because I want to make this as a capacity building system, I wrote this in 2011 in a book called System Change. And it was uh, on the heels of our success in Ontario. And I tried to capture, how do you change your whole system? And that, in that case, 2 million students, uh, 5,000 uh, 5, schools, 72 districts. So medium to large size. Uh, and I said, this is really what we've done in the decade, the previous decade. We have uh, worked on the intrinsic motivation of teachers and students and others. And we have figured out how to support that work. There And we do it in more partnership now than we did then, which is a, a, a good a good shift. But you basically have groups of educators working together purposefully and relentlessly to bring about the desired change. This in your documents, that's what you say you are doing now. That's what the Leadership Academy is uh, heading towards. Uh, easier said than done. But this is the collective phenomenon of a system in gear. And I'll show you my version of it in the... Uh, driver's paper. Uh, so another interesting way I want to I flip back also to how the do's and don'ts of doing this. And there's a short document uh, is put, put out by the ministry. When we were uh, starting in 2004, we said, let's, nobody has looked at the performance of the system, or at least in a helpful way, in the previous government for the previous uh, decade. And so let's take a look. And we had assessments of, uh, we have our own assessment agency that provided that data. And we said, well, look, there are 4,000 uh, primary schools and 800 of them are struggling. Uh, they're not you know, kind of moving. And, uh, and so we established or uh, focused this uh, initiative called OFIP, uh, Ontario Focused Intervention Partnership. And here's the tricky part. And it's in your, uh, in the course of doing this, I'm, I had in mind that I was advising the Welsh government about education given what the documents I saw. So I'm a self-appointed advisor, sorry to be that bold, but that's what I, how I want to think about it to sharpen the thinking. So I went back to this. This is not the current answer, but it's close to it. If you say you've got 4,000 primary schools and 800 of them are not on the move, what do you do? Uh, because the big issue, and you've struggled with this very much, and I, I'm going to draw some actually harsh conclusions about uh, how to position evaluation, because it's very subtle. It's very nuanced. It's not as straightforward as it looks like it could be. Uh, so here's what we did. We had an agency in the government level that was called the Literacy and Numeracy Secretariat. We had established that anew when uh, the election happened in 2003, when I came in as an advisor, brand new agency. And we said, this agency will help system help schools uh, uh, develop. And uh, what we uh, need to figure out is who needs uh, help and how do you do it in a way that's developmental and, and uh, inspiring instead of uh, being, uh, you know, feeling that you're underperforming. So this is how we, uh, I'll say what we did in a moment, uh, but we went from, you just saw in that previous slide, we went from 800 schools that were in that category to five years later, there are 83 schools. 
this is like obliterating almost the underperformance of uh, of school systems. And here's where I want to establish: How do you do this in a way that's supportive, not judgmental? And we've trained ourselves in these four things. Uh, we trained the premier, Dalton McGinty, the minister of education, uh, uh, the the staff. I say that trained in a kind of uh, emphatic way to say uh, their tendency, if you're if you're a gov- if you're a minister of education, is to say it's not performing. We need to, we need, yeah, we need to help, but we need to also get people to get their act together. The public wants that. Let's just do it. And, and, uh, and that's that. Uh, but there's much more subtle than that, you know, but we just made this explicit. We said, in order for this to work, you have to have a non-judgmental attitude. This is, uh, I've written a book last year or so called Nuance. And a lot of this is nuance. And I want to say this as a major theme to you, uh, that, that you've got good strategies. I've seen them. But the uh, whether the strategies work or fail will depend on nuance. Let me give you an example of nuance. When people uh, shift uh, away from what they think is harsh evaluation to something more helpful than uh, continuous, let's say continuous improvement is the phrase. So the uh, minister says, we're in the business of continuous improvement with our school system. Uh, you might think that that's a favorable step, but let me give you the nuance because continuous com- improvement can mean either one of two things. One, our, our way, which is on this slide, is that uh, we, we know that some schools have not uh, developed. And it's not because of the individuals. It's because the system hasn't really helped on that. It's because that there's a lot of capacity that's not there that people need to have. We need to partner, et cetera, et cetera. So here's my uh, non-nuanced version. Continuous improvement stance can be received as we will never be good enough. Think of the psychology of this. I'm the minister. I say I'm in, I'm in favor of continuous improvement. When I'm saying it, I'm, I'm saying, well, that's fair. Continuous improvement, development, I'm not judgmental. But it may be that the subtlety, either because the person receiving it is paranoid or because they, they're perceptive, is that may be say we'll never be good enough. So it's always that edge that's not going to be helpful for motivation. Change and motivation, intrinsic motivation are identical. So we we put up, and I'm going to give you some of the guidelines that's coming. It comes from good research, but it comes from the practice, not just our own, but all kinds of other people that are inclined this way. Uh, Andy Hargraves, for example, uh, and uh, Alma Harris and several that you would know. So uh, this is a system level. When you get to system level, this is also tricky because we've talked about system change. And uh, I'm not name dropping here when I say this, but I was talking with Peter Sange two days ago because we're working on similar things. He said, I never liked the word system. I never liked the word systemic, he said. It sounded too analytic. Uh, clunky, he said, was the word he used. He, and uh, we talked about it. And what we, what we both want to convey is systemness. Not a real word, but a real concept. Systemness is the mindset that you have, that wherever you are in the system as a leader, you have responsibilities for your own corner of the patch, but you have responsibility to partner to make other parts together. And this collective sense of systemness is what we get out of this. Here's a new concept that uh, we coined about a year ago. It replaces collaboration, I want to say it that way. It's connected autonomy. And it's the discovery, I think, that all good systems value autonomy and they, uh, they also uh, expect and uh, establish connectedness. 
And this is, uh, this is actually, we don't think of it as two concepts or even two facets. Connected autonomy is a single concept. And if wherever I am, if I'm a principal, an associate, uh, a leader at any level, I feel like I have a degree of autonomy. I'm my own person thinking, but I also feel I feed it in a connected way to other people. I receive it from other people all through this. Uh, we have, and you'll know from this uh, latest paper I did, that, uh, that we figured out that I called it academic obsession. That academic obsession has distorted the system away from student motivation from learning and teachers' motivation from providing support. And that the better fundamental driver is well-being and learning. We have a now a neuroscientist, a child psychiatrist on our team, Gene Clinton, fabulous addition, and we're uh, developing these things. It is about well-being, but well-being and learning. Our theme is being good at learning and good at life. So here, a little bit about external accountability, and I'm thinking of uh, you when I say this. Uh, external accountability uh, uh, recedes, I'm going to say, as a phenomenon uh, in the best systems. It recedes, almost disappears, I want to say. Uh, that the principle is, uh, one principle is that the more explicit the external accountability, paradoxically, the less effective it becomes. Uh, that providing support, you need to do that, but don't cast it as accountability. Now, I know you, know, you can give me arguments on this, and politicians can, uh, but it's tricky. Because what I'm saying is if you use the language of external accountability, even if you're, uh, if you're well-intended, it will creep in in a way that's less than helpful. And it's much better, as Richard Elmore said 12 years ago, that there's nothing uh, that uh, internal accountability, no amount of external accountability will be effective in the absence of internal. So when internal accountability is explicit, it's transparent, it's, uh, it's specific as to what it is, it's shared, it's worked out in partnership. That's what I mean by external accountability receding because the accountability is built into the interaction internally to the schools and the local authority and externally back and forth. It's a nuanced point, but it's so important in terms of motivation. So this is our theme and we have one of our, uh, we do system work and we do something called new pedagogies for deep learning. I don't have as much time on this for uh, talking about deep learning, but our our deep learning, which is going on in 10 countries, is based on, um, let's see, four, 13 parts of a model. They go together. Six of those parts are the global competencies. These replace, I want to say this boldly, these replace the uh, academic standards per se to uh, qualitative assessments and judgments. New metrics is, is one word you can use about what should, gra uh, what should uh, graduates be able to do which should be the effectiveness of it. And most of the new measures we're doing now, whether it's Australia or our own work in different countries, is to figure out, A, how to position these as the major driver of learning, and then link them to academics and link them in turn to qualitative assessments. Our full model is this. This is what I meant by the third team. The deep learning has the six elements in the beginning, in the middle of that. Uh, those six elements are supported by uh, our learning design framework, which has four integrated pieces, uh, uh, pedagogical practices, of course, at the center of that in some ways, uh, but also learning partnerships between and among students and teachers and parents and others. Learning environments, big changes because no longer the classroom, bigger the world in effect. And then leveraging digital technology now takes a, a proper place that way. 
And then those uh, nine things, uh, or 10 things, the six C's and the four elements of the design are surrounded by the infrastructure, which is your infrastructure in the case of your schools, your uh, four uh, regional consortia and the uh, system at the, at the top. So uh, let's look at then internally. And then I want to give you just a, uh, um, an introduction to the driver's question as part of the time I have here in order to uh, have set the discussion the way that I think it should go. If you take uh, collaboration, let me start with that. And people say uh, collaboration is good. Uh, we must do more of it. And I've been in this business for decades and we had collaboration in the uh, late 60s when I started and all the way through. And it's not true to say that collaboration is, is the answer because there are lots of forms of superficial collaboration, doing collaboration that wastes time, that, that makes, does more harm than good, et cetera. It's just a word. Uh, it's, just a, a, it's just a concept that, uh, that talks about people working together, but are they working together effectively? And so when we, uh, in the, fortunately in the last five years, and I mean the work here of several of our colleagues here, uh, uh, including ourselves, we have zeroed in on collaboration I now call it connected autonomy. Andy calls it uh, collaborative professionalism. John Hattie calls it collective efficacy. They're the same phenomenon. And what they are is a very strong, specific, highly specific, well-led culture within a school that starts to change pedagogy and these other things to get better results. That's where we start. And about 10 years ago, I had a discussion with John Hattie that... uh, uh, went like this. I said, uh, uh, your your work has brought things out into the open. It's really stimulating. You've got all these uh, uh, effect sizes. Uh, now he has over uh, probably 350 effect sizes, if you go on his website. And these are ranking uh, the, uh, the importance of different factors. But I said, they're all uh, individualistic behaviors of teachers. And we happen to know that uh, the collectivity is more powerful, that that's, that's where the big power comes and, and I said, what do you think of uh, collective action at the school level in this case? And he said, well, we haven't, we don't have the research on it. We're going to look at it. So they did look at it and you see the results here. Phenomenal, really predictable in other ways. Almost all of his, I'd say 98, 95% of his effect sizes of the 350 are below 1.0. And uh, when he did collective efficacy, a whopping 1.57 is the finding. Like, this is incredible. And uh, then you have to ask, well, what constitutes collective efficacy? And uh, this is, these are his words, not mine. Uh, the four things at the school, we're talking school culture now, that make a difference in the school, in these four feet on each other, is that among the teachers and the leaders, other leadership of the school, there's a shared belief in the capacity to uh, produce results. They believe it because of the other three elements, actually, is one way to put it. Secondly, that the primary input for that belief is there's evidence of impact, student engagement, student learning. Uh, Thirdly, a culture of collaboration that focuses on high yield learning uh, opportunities. Makes sense. Uh, And the fourth one, and I could have written this, it's uh, literally out of our playbook, leader participates in frequent specific uh, collaboration. I'm not gonna show you Vivian Robinson's work, you will know it, but when she examined school leadership and said, what are the uh, factors associated with student success? and she had a massive uh, database around the world, uh, her final conclusion was one thing. One thing stood out as the strongest. And the strongest one thing was this, the degree to which the principal in this case, because she was looking at that, uh, participates as a learner, participates as a learner 
with staff and others moving the school forward. So that's when, when a principal participates as a learner, all kinds of things are happening. Doesn't mean they're directing it. It means they're part of leading it. In fact, they're lead learners. They're learning as much as anybody in it, but that's what makes for success. So, uh, but not, but here's where I want to make a, a fork in the road that you've changed uh, yourselves in the last four or five years. It turns out, and it makes sense once you put it, point it out this way, that individual schools uh, being collaborative, uh, that's good, but it's not going to do much. It's not going to add up much. Uh, I can put it this way. You can be a highly collaborative school, highly effective collaborative school uh, within a school, you know, at a school, despite the district or local authority you're in or the system you're in. But you can't stay effective despite the context that you're in. And this is why we and others have moved to this. My colleague, uh, Lyle Kurtman from the U.S., who's looked at student competency or sorry, leadership competencies. He's got seven of them. The first six are about internal school work, and this is his seventh finding. And you see it here. Uh, we call it go outside to get better inside. He found that school leaders who focused on learning but didn't go outside with purposeful uh, networks were not as effective as school leaders who focused on learning and went outside and, had, in other words, had that relationship. So this leads to, I'm going to call it a, a reminder that good leaders build external networks and partnerships. You know that they contribute to those partnerships and they learn from it. It's a two-way street. Uh, two days ago, I was listening to Andreas Schleicher, who is a uh, head of PISA, as you know, but also does a lot of analysis of what's happening, what's effective. And he had uh, he had a very uh, this is his more advanced analysis. I'm going to put it this way. So now I'm asking you to shift your mindset from intra-school collaboration to collaboration of schools within itself and with other levels of the system, laterally and vertically within, in this case, Wales. And this is what he said two days ago in his presentation. He said now, and I've, I've, I've uh, taken the liberty to call it social intelligence. You can call it good collaboration, but anyway, that's my favorite word for it. And he said three things. He said, what was happening now, what's happened in the last two, three, four years is that now we expect and want and, and help develop uh, teachers as professional knowledge workers. I, I'd probably say more than that because I want to make the connection. But now this is the, these are different kinds of teachers. Secondly, they prefer to work not in hierarchical situations, but in flat collegial, these are his words again, entrepreneurial cultures. And third, this is kind of the punchline for me. They look outward, not upward for ideas and solutions. In other words, the hierarchy no longer uh, uh, steers the system even. It enables the system, and the hierarchy has to be part of the system solution. But they're no longer figuring out the solution and then trying to implement it. They're part of a learning equation. The more they learn, the more they can lead. But this uh, looking outward and upward is really important. So this takes me to... Um, uh, system change, system leadership. I get, uh, wanted to work on system leadership with you, not just school leadership. So it is about all of us. It is about being in the system. And very important, number two, it's people who are in touch with their purpose. It seems odd to say that for school systems, but if you're beavering away implementing priorities and literacy and numeracy and high school graduation, and it's a narrow kind of uh, uh, focus on that, you have lost your purpose from most students' point of view. It's always relational. Uh, that building of participating in networks and 
collaboration is the only way to bring about change in thinking and doing on a large scale. It's, it's internal to that attra- interaction, vertically and laterally, that make the change. The legacy of a leader is not just the impact you've had on the bottom line of student learning, but how many good leaders you leave behind when you retire or move, move on. Uh, leaders with contextual knowledge, a big phrase I had in uh, nuance. Nuance is uh, uh, leaders, among other things, who are contextually literate. Sounds like a bit of a clunky phrase, but it's a good one. Contextually literate, the leaders I featured in that book, about 10 of them, they were all uh, inclined when they went to get into this, uh, you know, into this depth of a culture in which they were working or moved to. Another way of putting it is every time you take a new position or move to a new location, you become automatically de-skilled to a certain part because you can't possibly understand the context if you haven't been there. So this humility of de-skilledness, this orientation, I've got to learn each time. And of course, the pandemic has pulled out the context from under us. So we're all de-skilled at the same time and that this is really part of that. So now I want to move in the, into our deep learning work and, uh, and the uh, right drivers. Uh, this is, I, I want to say, the uh, new purpose for public education. I think the shift is radical. I think it means uh, no longer is education seen and treated as the passive recipient of what society wants, a bad society, actually. No longer is that the case, but now we want education to be a leader of creating the, the future. It's got a new role of creating the future, not just passing on the past. So that's one way of putting it. The second big way, and this is our deep learning work, our deep learning work doesn't start with the competencies of academic features. It starts with these five things. These, this five is being good at life and good at learning. It's built into our learning. It's built into our pedagogies. It's built into everything we do that leads into it. So that's the, that's the newness. And this presents education with the opportunity in the rest of this decade to change from being what I call the passive recipient to one that leads society, not just leads education, but leads society. So that's why I wrote this book uh, or this booklet, seemed like a book at the time, uh, uh, and I released it in February, The Right Drivers for Whole System Success. I'd written a smaller version uh, in 2011, 10 years ago, uh, called The Right Drivers, and uh, or The Wrong Drivers, actually. This report and I hope you will read it or have read it and will think of it. I went all the way in this report. I didn't set out to do that. It just as I started to write it, it kept going deeper and deeper. And it's not a blueprint or a strategy for implementation, even though it is quite comprehensive. But it's not. Uh, I don't have step one, step two, step three about implementation. It's an invitation to crowdsource the ideas about implementation within and across uh, drivers. I'm now working uh, with several aspects of this. Some people want to work on well-being and uh, academics together, and later they might come to the other three. Uh, the, uh, it does require leadership across all levels. This is the setup. Uh, um, um, I ended up saying there are four right drivers, powerful, fundamental, uh, not well-positioned now. The point of the paper is to reposition them as the drivers, and these actually are a human paradigm because inside each of the four, you find humanity, you find emotion, you find spirit. All of the good things about, about uh, being a human are inside these four drivers. 
When you look at what's happening, though, instead, and this is, I'm going to say, characterizes the last 40 years, at least, uh, that, the, that uh, this occult of academic obsession has distorted things. It favors the elite, uh, but it also produces, as uh, some of the books have said, wounded winners. They're elite. They may look like they're successful, but they're not actually uh, ending up well. Uh, and, and machine intelligence, powerful, but powerfully wrong. It doesn't have intention. It's careless, to say, take the word. Uh, austerity, some great new work on economic analysis and solutions and fragmentation. I, the the, the uh, nicknames I gave them, I just take the right drivers. Uh, you see them here, the four that, uh, and I, I want to say by a driver, I mean the one that has the most influence. The ones that are on the right that I call the, uh, the, the wrong drivers in a sense, they aren't wrong in sort of fundamental permanent way, but they're wrong if they dominate. If they're super drivers, they're wrong. So what we have to do is reposition those so that they're in the service of these. And uh, the way I'm repositioning it now in implementation is saying, how do we help cause the rise of the right drivers? And how do we dampen but not eliminate, put the other ones in our place? So in the next uh, few minutes, I'm not going to be, I've given you a list in uh, each of the paired drivers. I've given you a list of the characteristics that are related to each set. So there will be eight of those. Uh, each pair, each uh, driver has a pair of right and wrong. Starting with the wrong driver, number one, this is the obsession with academic. Uh, look at the number seven. Winners are losers too. Wounded winners is the phrase that's used in uh, in one of the one of the books. Uh, the school system is rigged to favor the elite. It doesn't announce it that way. That's the way it goes. So you can delve into this. The obsession with testing and standardization and grades, as opposed to development of knowledge, uh, is a narrow assessment system. All of these imply changes. This is what's wrong, so to speak. But it is about uh, about the well-being side, having a sense of purpose and meaning and engagement. But it's also the opportunity to to learn and, and lead. And I'm discovering since I wrote the paper, uh, people are, are sending me notes and I'm, I'm interacting with them by Zoom. People who are saying we're working on well-being of students. And we have a very different pathway to academic learning than the rest of the system. And we're getting success because we change students around from their sense of hopelessness to one of, I, I really am potentially interested in this. I can do things. So uh, soon we'll be able to characterize and show some of those pathways. Uh, the second pair, really interesting. Uh, I, I, I took, and this is a bit of a setup, let's say. I, I, I juxtaposed social intelligence and machine intelligence and said, who's winning? And, 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 and you know, in the evolution of things. And there's a great book out, Claudia Golden is her name, uh, the primary author. Uh, they, she did this analysis of uh, the, uh, in the U.S., the evolution of education during the, the last century and the evolution of um, technology. So the race is between technology and education. And this is literally what she found. First 60 years of the century, education was outstripping machines. The last 50 years, it's reverse. And it is a reverse now. It's partly because of the money we'll get to in a moment. So I want to put this uh, as a serious proposition. I actually believe in it. If you look at evolution, which I do, the, the biologists who study evolution and the others, uh, Gene Clinton on our team with, uh, with neuroscience, it's pretty clear that humans have phenomenal uh, potential to, uh, there's no ceiling on what they can do. 
in a sense. And I'd almost say there's a ceiling on machines because it's governed by physics. There's not a ceiling on people because it's governed by human, human values and creativity. So in any, any case, I think we have, uh, we have underestimated ourselves and each other. And we can now then, and this, all this documentation, the references are in the, in the book, in the booklet. So the rise of social intelligence, a bit of an odd word, I guess, I suppose, <clears throat> but it's about collaboration, effective collaboration. And it's about, uh, uh, collectivity. Now I'm changing the chain. I'm big. I'm enlarging the shift from it's not just the social intelligence intrust school. It's not just the social intelligence in a network at a local authority or a network of schools. It is both of those, but it's the social intelligence in the vertical and uh, lateral interrelationships, the system as a whole and the movement of social trust therein. And then uh, second last, uh, this, uh, investments in uh, in the kind of development we're talking about here there's been a radical shift in it started five years ago and it's because a number of uh, five or six economists all of them are women turns out started to analyze differently accurately still on the data uh, what's happened in the last hundred years or so about uh, about the evolution of uh, investments and money and GDP tripled, so it's, it looks like wealth is being created all the time. I don't have to give you the details, but you you know that it's there so clearly. Almost you can pinpoint the year it started, 1978, that uh, that the alliance share of GDP, the measure that's used of that creation of wealth, goes to the 10% or 5%, whatever you want to take, of learners and then uh, of uh, of shareholders and owners. And then the uh, uh, and then others, not only uh, poverty, but the middle class, they go downward. And so you get this cumulative lack of uh, ability to live even uh, occurring decade after decade for 40 years. And, and this is the galloping inequality and it undercuts uh, uh, dignity. It, uh, it jeopardizes society. The reasons I said earlier, instead of that, these economists say, and again, all of this is well documented that you need to invest in capacity building, uh, into early learning, into the infrastructure, into things that will produce wealth, but redistribute it differently. And that this was, uh, I guess, if you want to put it away, uh, put it dramatically, and I really believe that this, this is the goal, reduce poverty and increase education and society will flourish. And that is that is that fundamental when you put these four together. So these first three drivers, uh, the, the positive ones, they have to be brought together, uh, uh, abused. Uh, the fourth driver is is uh, is another one I want to leave to the last because it's systemist. But the first three, well-being, equality, investments, and social intelligence, there's the synergy of those. And then we get to the final one, which is uh, the flip side of this is the ad hoc development, the lack of purposeful investment that's been occurring again for more than 40 years but definitely for 40 years and replacing it with the rise of systemness and this is what i see your when i read your documents i see uh you as attempting to develop the rise of systemness while inheriting and this is where i take a bit of a chance a uh, context of uh, people not sure they want to be they trust the collectivity a degree of siloism, uh, wanting to get out of that, an exciting amalgam, if I put it that way, 
of things about the three levels of the system and that this is you want to change the system. You don't want to just change a school or just change a network or just change one of the four associates or even all four individually without the whole. So uh, when systems change, uh, this is what I think happens. Uh, This is uh, uh, that it really is uh, come to Thomas Kuhn in my conclusion that it really is a critical mass of people uh, are who are dissatisfied with the way things have been increasingly dissatisfied. And then there's the potential attraction of an alternative replacement. Uh, there has to be courageous leaders, especially for the interim, the transition, because the old system, as bad as it is, it's clear what it is. It exists. The new system hasn't quite formulated yet. We go back to Machiavelli, who says new system doesn't have that many supporters because it's not existing and people don't know it that much. In some of the work, I've, I've talked about the three system, three levels. And uh, my shorthand for saying this is that you need to have the following mindset. Exploit upward. So don't do what you're told when the words are coming down. Exploit, which means proactively consuming the directions. So one of three things, exploit upward. Liberate downward, whether you're the minister or school principal. Liberation is the next level down, the principal with the teachers and the and the and the students and community, and then lateralize everywhere which you learn laterally, as uh, uh, Andrew Schleicher said, learning laterally, outward laterally, is far more powerful now. There's many more lateral uh, people, so to speak, than there are vertical, and uh, and their ideas are better because they're closer to action. Finally, uh, two points, uh, two last ones. Uh, this part of um, the moonshot capabilities. I did a list recently, I actually haven't shared it yet, of the 10 qualities of moonshot leaders, 10 qualities of leaders who have the chance to change fundamentally the system within a decade. And then uh, lastly, uh, that uh, we used to say hope is not a strategy. And I, I think that's, uh, I think I'm, I'm now changing my, my mind. I think experienced helplessness, which is hopelessness, that's not a strategy. But some of the new things are uh, learned hopefulness, I call it, because now we're getting pockets of success. And when you uh, leverage learned hopefulness, you start to reverse the trends that I've been talking about and you get really strong system change. So that's, uh, I hope, I know that's been a, a, a mindful and more than that, but I look forward to hearing you just pulling out from the lessons from your discussion. And so it's over to you for the next half hour. Thanks very much. Michael, thank you so much. I mean, yeah, wonderful, wonderful start to our afternoons. I'm having to kind of curb my own enthusiasm here because uh, I think like many of the practitioners in the system, you know, giving us so much kind of food for thought and and things to kind of uh, think into. Now, I think in today's seminar, we've got a wider audience than ever before. And so we're really going to try and put it out there to the the voice of practice and the professionals and colleagues that we have in, in the room with us today. I know a lot of questions have been generated so far. And so we're going to kind of go to those people and, and ask them to, to ask their questions and bring them to you, if that's OK. The first one uh, comes from a group with, which had Nick Morrison in it, uh, asking around intrinsic motivation. So, Nick, I don't know if, if you're still on the call, if you're able to, to bring your question forward. That'd be wonderful. Yes, thanks. Thanks very much. And thanks so much for your presentation this afternoon. It gave us so much food for thought. We didn't quite know where to start, to be honest. But the question that we have for you is, how do you foster intrinsic motivation? And what kind of experience would build on that? Yeah, well, that's the fundamental question. If there was one um, other term I would use for uh, 
positive change, it would be the extent to which extrinsic motivation is activated. So it's the right, the right track. And uh, Dan Pink wrote, you know, one of the good books on motivation called Drive. And in it, he said, uh, extrinsic motivation, he gave many examples, uh, doesn't work because it doesn't connect to people's purpose and meaning and things like that. He had all kinds of data as to the fact that it doesn't work. He said, what does work is when it has meaning. So that's what we call the moral purpose. When it has uh, some degree of uh, enabling people to get better at what they're doing. So you get better, you want to do more of it. And uh, he also talked about uh, the uh, a degree of autonomy, which we capture in connected autonomy. So that's one kind of answer. But the more direct answer is this. And I take it with students. Uh, with students, the reason that academic obsession doesn't work is that it doesn't tap into initially to their intrinsic motivation. And especially if the other reasons for not being uh, learner oriented. So we know now, and we can actually marshal this, uh, if I just give you the four big ones from our NPDL, if we're talking to students and, uh, and all you, in a sense, all you have to do is get a group together of, uh, of students and say, what motivates you to learn? Let's have a discussion. Now you have to have trust and a con- context. But what, what are we centered on is a sense of purpose. Why might I want to do this? Sense of meaning. How meaningful is it potentially for me? Uh, sense of belongingness. Belongingness is always a big motivator because it's the group now. And the fourth one, which is really very powerful in our deep learning, is uh, uh, wanting to make a contribution to the world. Not save the world, uh, you know, a whole continent, but even local, whatever it is. Those are the things that young people today, uh, we haven't found a student young enough who is not a change agent in a sense. But if you if you just tap into this. So the answer to me is students as change makers. And a student as change maker has to be a learner and has to apply that learning to meaningful uh, uh, context of what they're involved in. Once you turn on that meeting, meaning, sorry, that kind of meaningfulness, you, then you can, you know, they can be great at critical analysis and math and whatever they need. We've got, if you go to our npdl.org is the uh, is a site, NPL, npdl.org, you'll see uh, several videos there, four minutes long each, where students are doing this work I've just described. They're articulate about it. They're excited about it. They go from being not, a, not interested in learning to be lead learners. It's there. We, we cause it. The teachers cause it. So this is uh, take intrinsic motivation as the kind of uh, notion you have in your mind when you're thinking of particular students and how you motivate them. And I also include students are really disaffected. We see our deep learning is good for all students, especially good for students who are disaffected. They just change night and day. So it's a di- we're using the wrong key when we use academic obsession. The right key is motivation of the individuals to want to do something that's meaningful to them. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Nick, for the question. Linked to that, Michael, I mean, our next question is around uh, collective vision and responsibility. And it comes from Kelly Mackay, who I believe is a fairly sort of young leader within our system, uh, just got a headship qualification. Kelly, would you like to answer your question now, please? 
Oh, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for the opportunity to speak. Um, as uh, Paul has just said, I'm an acting head teacher at the moment, um, and I've been involved in the curriculum reforms over the last four years. So uh, I'm interested when reflecting upon the implementation challenges that will come up now for different schools. We're all at variable levels in our uh, levels of engagement. So I'm just interested, please, in our Ontario sort of approach to that collective vision and that collective responsibility and how, you know, um, the challenges towards that were overcome really so I'd be really interested in your thoughts and advice for us in that respect. Sure um, the, the, I mean I've written about this in um, quite a few places but if you just think of the role of the leadership of the school we'll just take the school part the process of a leader is to let's say start with uh, I, I, I think of concrete examples one of the principals we worked with moved to a school in Ontario the school had nine classrooms they were, uh, there was an okay school, but not great. Uh, the, nine sc- the nine classrooms were silos. The students and the teachers were, were friendly with each other, but there was no professional collaboration going on. And uh, if you take his, I'm going to take his job at, or his, what, what's he's facing as the task of your question, what would, what would I do? What did he do when he went into that school and saw nine silos? And he knew it, they were friendly, but there was no, uh, there's no movement on learning going on. And so how, how do you handle that? I, I can tell you can extract from it. You handle it by uh, go slow to go fast. You have to, you know, I'm talking about a new principle now, uh, not being too, uh, in, you know, not rushing too much. And go, go slow to go fast means you spend a few months building degrees of understanding them, degrees of trust, figuring out what to do, uh, and then, um, and then, uh, and then being uh, more explicit about, uh, the agenda. How do we how do we get a more uh, better uh, instructional development going on? Uh, what if what's ways of doing that? Participate as a lead learner. And so in this case, the principal uh, he didn't even chair the meetings. In this case, the te- teachers did. They started to do things. He started to have uh, things like uh, eventually, like eight months later, uh, uh, one strategy was to, uh, teachers. There were nine of them. The other eight teachers on a given Wednesday at the end of the day would visit a single classroom, no, no students. The teacher would demonstrate what they're doing to the other eight teachers while that was working. So they did that nine times less over two or three weeks. And then none of it is impositional. It's, it's like, uh, uh, I want you create a climate of trust. You want to create a climate was, um, I don't know, you know, uh, you, uh, where people are, uh, the trust is really basically saying is, I feel free uh, as a principal saying, I don't know how to do something. I mean, I know some other things, so I also feel free to say what I think should happen, but as things I have to learn. So you create this learner atmosphere and that people then start to experience in a not, this is why the evaluation part doesn't work, but access to specificity, access to good ideas, um, uh, really expectations without kind of pushiness. Uh, we strive for precision, but avoid prescription. So there's a lot of change nuggets in the in that kind of sophisticated relationship that are there and uh, and it works i guess i'll say and uh, and I've, we've seen it work in um, other combinations of uh, development i did i have a paper you go on my website it's michaelfullen.ca there's a paper i did with a principal in the us her name is michelle pinchon we worked in one uh, i filmed her in one school this is in california when she was highly successful, she moved to a second school 
that in the same district, which really needed a lot of development. And be, as she moved, she and I teamed up and I said, let me, let me follow you into the new school for the first two years. I won't give you any advice. You know how to do this. And you, when you go there, I, I ask her questions every six months. When you went there the first time, what did you find? Okay, what did you do then? Uh, six months later, what did you, uh, what have you accomplished? What's next? And we wrote this in the, in the article. You can see it is four or five pages long. Within 24 months, she changed the culture of that, that the teachers changed the culture of the new school dramatically towards this collaborative work that we're talking about. But it can't be, uh, we have other cases where people just use professional learning communities in a structural, superficial way, and teachers find they're wasting their time and they resent it. So you really have to be participate as a learner, as a problem solver, as creating the vision. And there's lots of examples of it around now. And I think it's sometimes as straightforward once you get to know people that first six months as saying to them, uh, what kind of culture do we have here? What kind should we want? Let's hear from, you know, because you build up trust enough. And most people don't like the old way because it wasn't working for them. And then you get the odd uh, two or three or whatever it is that resisted. And uh, I have another line for that, which is you'd, sometimes you have to um, practice impressive empathy. Impressive empathy is when you have empathy for people who disagree with you. That's why it's impressive. And so you have uh, you really do have empathy because you're trying to understand where they uh, they, they came came from. And eventually the culture of the school uh, and the you know, there's several um, several books that we've summarized, uh, Andy Hargrave's work and several others that are studies of high poverty, high collaborative schools that really work. And you could see it in like 20 pages what it is and it's what i've just paraphrased a few minutes ago michael we've got a couple of questions popping up in the chat now the first one is from alwyn ward around uh main priorities after the pandemic so yeah michael the question is what should our main priority cut be as we come out of the pandemic the main general guidelines are don't fall for the old agenda which is a, a loss of learning mindset because you'll get into negative demotivation with students and others that whole thing will be uh, uh, wrong. And so don't start with that. Uh, I was talking to a group of superintendents yesterday in California. And one said, what I'm going to do is jump in and do all the things I wanted to do before anyone can uh, catch me. I mean, it's kind of the way he put it, because he said, the gaps are there now. And if I don't take it now, it'll get sealed off in the wrong way. So his he was being proactive about it. That's another variation. Uh, and then uh, another way to think about it is that we think that this is the opportunity to change the system along the ways I presented this afternoon, so that it's a two-step process. Step one is deal uh, uh, deal with the, the severity of the uh, human crisis right now in the short run, well-being, in other words, well-being of adults, well-being of that, deal with that, but have in mind that that is going to be a fairly short period of, let's say, six months as you head towards what are we going to do beyond that? And some of the new things are that students are more amenable to a discussion about what is good and what is not so good learning. Parents are more involved now than they were before that uh, uh, for better, or for worse, but they're more potentially available. So there's a whole, uh, the agenda I'm talking about, not all at once, but directionally is one where you, uh, where you say my attitude is to uh, first of all, be alive in the short run and second of all become alive 
in the in the medium run as we that so it, it's not it's not it's not saying go to all the nirvana stuff right away when people are are suffering like crazy but do the patch up as a step towards setting the conditions and this is why we place well-being as the driver which includes learning an academic part as the uh, backup or as a second secondary so it's the well-being strategy and a well-being is not just taking care of ill-being it's having well-being flourish uh, that doing things that actually weren't done before the pandemic and we've said that the goal is to um, is to end up with something that was better than december 2019 the next question from the chat comes from claire williams which is taking a step back and looking more at that kind of that middle tier and at that system level. So Claire, I don't know if you're on the call, if you'd like to to ask your question. Hi, thank you. Um, hi, Michael. I've I've written so many pages of notes and I've been really inspired um, by everything that you've you've said to us this afternoon. Um, my question, and um, I I sit on the, the board of the National Academy, so it's kind of coming from with that perspective in mind. In the National Academy as an organisation in the middle tier using this as an opportunity as well. So how does the National Academy as a middle tier organisation, how can, how can they play um, or we play a key role in supporting that systemness? Because we've all agreed in the, the breakout chat that we had that none of us want um, you know, to go back to old ways. And there's a lot of rhetoric around no snap back. And that term's being used quite a lot, which we all you know, we all believe in, but you have to be really brave to ensure that that doesn't happen um, because things can start to creep back in. Um, so in terms of accountability measures, for example, you know, how can an organisation like the National Academy support that systemness um, in working with the consortia, with Estin, with Welsh Government? It's a little bit hard for me to answer that because I don't know the National Academy and where it uh, where it fits and uh and how it should fit. And I think the, um, I think the goal is, I said enough about, I said something about evaluation, which is that the, the priority is to build up internal accountability. And that is uh, non-judgmentalism, specificity or precision, uh, uh, transparency, trust, and, and uh, linkage to the outside. So the more that you are collectively strong in the subgroups, the more you're able to relate uh, to the larger context. So I'm trying to think of it in a better way. In one sense, I don't want to think about how the National Academy can be successful when it does something to the other levels, but how the National Academy can be successful because it partners with the other levels where the other people are at the other levels are contributing to the solution as much as anything. Uh, I went to one of the longstanding Mary Parker Follett, 1920s. I use her a lot now. She said, forge unity of purpose. The goal of leadership is to forge. I love, I like the word forge because it means you have to interact with people. And she said, keep, you know, that's the, that's the continuous thing. And she said at once, forge unity of purpose. And once you think you have it, she said, don't expect it to last for more than 15 seconds. I mean, she was being a little bit tongue in cheek, but basically saying this is the full time job because why why do you keep need forge it? Because newcomers are coming all the time. People are leaving. New ideas come up. Environment changes. So it is a change proposition all the time. So I think you uh, the National Academy has to have a strong sense of two way partnership with anybody they're working with two way. 
partnership. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Claire, for raising that question. Michael, and we'll t- declare an interest in the next question. It comes from one of my own senior leadership team, but more of that kind of that teacher leader level. So we're trying to go for kind of all tiers here. And it comes from Stacey Harris. Stacey, you're still with us? Hi, Michael. Thank you for your inspiring talk this afternoon. Um, my question comes as we start to think about designing our school level curriculum for our children across our federation. And I suppose is where do we begin on that journey of um, introducing the six C's and deep learning into our curriculum? One answer is we have a team that does that all the time, but I want to give you a more illustrative answer. Uh, Let's take, uh, there has to be sufficient interest at your end among not just you, but a group of people to do it. So let me give you two examples from Canada. Uh, Ottawa Catholic District has 83 schools. They said four years ago when we were just starting, we want to be part of this. We think the global competencies, as we call the six C's, are the way to go. We have to build those in. And so they started with seven schools out of, uh, out of 83. Uh, that means that the principals and teachers were willing to start it. Then they, uh, they, they thought they would move more slowly than happened, but 12 months later, they added eight more. That was 15. And then 24 months later, all 83 came on board. And now they have, uh, they, they get no permission from the government. They go ahead and they do the six C's and they predict because students will be engaged and the learning will, will be better, that they won't have any trouble with the government questioning what they're doing because they're actually going to be more successful. And incidentally, a label I would want to put on this to kind of successfulness is that what's increased is professional power and political power. Professional power is we know what we're doing, we're getting success and we can articulate this, including the problems. Political power is if you're successful with your community, the government's not going to touch you very much. You give, you're, you're, you've got political, but you, mean, you must have professional and political, not one or the other. A- another big example is this province of Newfoundland Labrador, which is the easternmost uh, province. They have only one district. It covers its fishing villages and all kinds of things uh, that have, uh, there's 255 schools. And uh, 18 months ago, they said, we want, they invited me down. They said, we want to start down this pathway, the very one you mentioned. And we said, well, that's great. Let's start with, uh, maybe we can start with uh, 100 schools or 50 schools as a startup. And they said, no, we want to do it all. Okay, well, we might face it in a bit. So they're having a big success now, all through pandemic. They started the day we agreed to start. I was down there was the last flight I took, March 11th, uh, 2020. So, So they started into that and they've just been going fantastic direction. And there was another, I want to tie in, and sorry to do it this way, but uh, I think it will be helpful. Uh, uh, Paul, I think you were making a question about or commenting on somebody asking about the mental health, uh, social worker, other side of the uh, additional educational. And this is what um, I want to say this explicitly. One of the things we're doing on the driver number one, which is well-being, is we are partnering, that is to say, partnering between the schools and the uh, the mental health well-being professions. So if we go to Newfoundland, Labrador, you will see teams at each of the three levels. They have uh, the state level and they have uh, 16 regions and then schools. Uh, you will see teams where the uh, uh, you know social workers and other kinds of support staff outside of education are now part of the teams with educators in the same way and learning and pulling that out. So if you take systemness as the, as, a, as the lens, 
Uh, you can't just deal with the education portion of it and expect it to be successful. Successful if you're not also dealing with the, uh, you know, from age uh, zero to five, then plus plus uh, on the well-being side. And it's it's actually activating. It's very stimulating that these people knew they should have been cooperating before. Now in the model, they do that, and they're getting they're they're, they're just loving it. Uh, and they're having, they're being more effective. So I think it is part of this. When uh, one of the phrases I used was nested purpose, I think it's nesting this activity with a purpose in terms of the system. All the pieces of the system will be necessary for this to be successful. So it sounds daunting, but I think when you do it by doing it incrementally, there are lots of people we now know in Newfoundland Labrador who can articulate this better than I do because they're leading it. They've been leading it for 12 months and they're practitioners. Thank you, Stacey. I said I'm feeling very biased and very lucky that we get to sort of start to implement some of this at our own local level um, and to, to, to bounce those ideas around with you, Michael. Our next question kind of takes, again, you referenced it a little bit, the Ontario context, and you mentioned before we, we started today's session that we're obviously heading into an election period here in Wales. So it comes from Jeremy Griffiths, who's one of our own associates within the Academy. Jeremy, would you like to bring your question, please? Thank you, uh, Paul. Hi, Michael. I was uh, one of a group of people who were lucky enough to visit uh, OISI, uh, probably about 18 months, two years ago now, just to um, to study what you had done and how you had made the uh, the reform journey in Ontario. Um, at that time, I think there'd just been a new government elected in Ontario, and there seemed to be a lot of intrepidation around the, around the building, around what impact that might have on the future direction and the future, you know, and I read some articles about teachers being tested for maths and all that kind of stuff. Um, We've got this election coming up. So my question really is, did that have an impact ultimately on the direction of education in Ontario? And really, what could we expect if something similar happens here? Yeah, it's a great question. It's the big question. And uh, I've had a lot of practice at it uh, since 2000, (laughs) uh, because just when you think you've got the right combination, it uh, kind of falls apart for different reasons. And in our own case, it was some of the missteps of the gov- the incumbent government that got them de-elected uh, that, you know, I was helpless to uh, to be able to influence because it wasn't, it was political rather than educational. So I think the answer is, uh, and it's, and I'll just give you our case literally as a case point. Uh, I was involved uh, the 10 years prior to 2003. Don't go back that far. It was uh, the conservative government. It was a negative government for education. The teachers were on strike all the time. There was huge conflict. Uh, uh, everything was flatlined in terms of educational learning. Uh, uh, high school graduation was stuck at 68%, all that stuff. Uh, so we came in in 2003, and I was appointed advisor to the premier, not, not just the minister, but the premier. And we then put in good strategies that you would have seen some evidence of from 2003 to 2013 and got great results. Uh, lots of like details as to why the government blew the election eventually, uh, not around educational matters, but other matters, but that's, that's what it is. So when the new government came in in 2018, which was uh, the one that was polar opposite to what I described, then our strategy shifted. Our strategy shifted to work with the districts. We have 72 districts. So we said the government, when I, be, when I was working with the government, we could get the government to invest money, to not be judgmental, to be enabling of things, to be proud of the, that, to, you know, all those things that were positive. So we said, okay, we can't, we can't, and I've mentioned this, I think, in the pre-talk, but some of you weren't there, 
I said, you're stuck with the policies, but you're not stuck with the mindset. So we said, we're not going to take, we're going to, we're going to let them have their mindset as long and we'll fight against the bad intrusions. Uh, but, but really what we'll do is make, make our uh, day meaningful with the 72 districts or as many as we could, the middle, we call it. So that's how, how we did that. And then now when I want to turn to you, what I want to think is, because I don't know the politics enough, that maybe you, um, you, want, you want to look at a lens with how can, we, uh, how can we think of this election as an opportunity to proactively partner up with, in this sense, uh, that, uh, that will it be good enough? Because that's basically what I did in 2003. I partnered upward. And we were able to change the upward level somewhat. So I think I would want to uh, be, because if I look at your policy documents, there's a feeling in there, uh, I guess at all levels, uh, the, the bigger population politicians, that the, that the system should change. A lot of that system change is about being more positive, being uh, you know uplifting students who aren't doing so well, uh, not being so punitive. There's a lot of good vibes in there. And I'm going to uh, assume that this new government will have good vibes, then it depends on who the minister is and uh, who the pre- premier is, uh, uh, that whether whether you see it and whether you can make it happen in a way that there's a st- distinct possibility of having a proactive relationship with the new government that serves their agenda and your agenda at the same time. And if, if the, to the degree that that's not there, you recede a bit, you're still a good citizen and you're not going to do a, you know, a rebellion, but you're going to recede a bit and invest your energy in the middle and the bottom and, and do things that will be positive. And that's, you know, that is what we've done. And there's, we have an election in about 22 months from now, and we're counting on a good government getting back in so we can hit the ground running. Whether that happens or not, it's a big question. And the, and the higher your professional power, the greater your political power. And think of those two things as not being shy to use the political power as long as you have the professional power as part and parcel of that. Michael, I think this brings, we, we could ask you questions for, <laughs> for many hours the rest of your day there in Canada, but uh, it, it kind of brings us to the end of the time we've got. You know, it's, it's less kind of food for thought than, than manna for, from heaven, I think, for many of us uh, that ask kind of how we've had with you. Thank you so much for, for really sharpening our thinking and, uh, you know, at both those levels, you know, kind of Welsh government, local, middle tier. It's over to you now just to kind of sum up and provide that closing summary. Okay, well, this is, um, I'll do the best I can without repeating myself uh, so much. I think I, I knew when I read your various documents and knew enough about you that this would be a hit the ground running kind of uh, experience because of uh, your chomping at the bed, dealing with things and ready to move forward to figure out the, the immediate future. So I knew it would be a, a connection that way. And, uh, and I wanted to be a bit pushy about, uh, you know, overstating certain things that, uh, you know, I still I still like the nuance thing. I take my continuous improvement example. When you hear the word continuous improvement, it's not so much um, what is said by a given, let's say, political leader or other leader. It's whether there's any kind of nuanced meaning behind it. So I can take a testing schema. And if the fundamental attitude of the person proposing it is developmental, it can work reasonably well, whereas I can take the identical solution in the in the minds and hands of someone who has a more uh, you know negative attitude, and it will be a failure. It's the same the same solution, two different mindsets. 
And this is why I expressed it the way where sometimes continuous improvement when a politician uses that, uh, the, they actually may, may mean, even though they don't, um, even though they don't say it this way, might, may not even recognize themselves this way as uh, you'll never be good enough. We have continuous improvement, but actually I'm saying you'll never be good enough. Uh, that's why you need continuous improvement. So that's the kind of uh, context. So I'm, I'm looking for ways of, uh, of uh, uh, interpreting and p- positioning things that they are uh, not, um, not, not uh, misinterpreted that way. So that's one thing I want to say. The second on nuance, I do, I, there's a great case study in there. Uh, Mary Claire Bretherton is her name. She became a principal in a district called, sorry, a school in uh, Lincolnshire uh, that was absolutely in the Pitts district on the on the on the the, the uh, failing schools list for 12 years. And her job was to turn it around in a short period of time. And I have a 10-page case study in nuance that describes what she did from the day she arrived with trepidation to the success she had 24 months later. And she had the success because of what she did in relation to the teachers and the community. And of the 33 teachers, no one left during that period. Uh, She said on week one, I'm not going to sack anybody was the phrase she used. I'm going to, we're going to work on this together. All I ask you to do is have a discussion. She did the build relationships for six months and then, uh, uh, you know, uh, and then began to change it. So there's a there's a lot of things now where things are uh, quite, I guess, promising on the one hand, but really complex on the other. And I would like people to uh, take the chance of positive change, knowing that it's not a slam dunk. It's not really going to be that easy, but it's the only thing we should should ha- have as a probability to do and when you do it, I think there's enough of positive vibes in the in the education worlds that I deal with that you'll find a lot of um, a, a lot of colleagues within Wales, but also other. You know, when I take Scotland. There's all kinds of things going on now with strategies of networks vertically and horizontally on the same agenda we're working with. So there's a lot of places where this is uh, this is happening, and I think it's the time not to be modest in one sense and not to be a braggart, but basically for uh, for you to say, and um, and here's where I want to go out on a slight limb. I'm going to say that um, in Wales, you've been talking about it for 20 years and, and not doing enough, moving ahead enough. And it's not even a criticism, I think of it that way. That's just life. But if it's, if there's too much talk, not enough action, not enough breakthroughs. You need, I think, this time to say, why would it be different in 2022 than it has been in the last 20 years? We had these ideas 20 years ago. I bet I bet a lot of you could identify the ideas you're talking about now and championing that were there before, but they haven't stuck. So I, I think you need to have that kind of uh, edgy discussion. Why hasn't it worked before? What would it take? And I do believe that mobilizing the three levels, having a good uh, influential relationship with the polit- politicians is the way to center the work. And that uh, that is the next phase. So I'll be very interested in it. I don't expect it to be linear or successful, but I think it's, uh, you know, it's like this going up this way and that there'll be other places in the world that are doing the same thing. So be a leader within your country 
and be a leader vis-a-vis other uh, jurisdictions that are uh, that are on the move as well because we can learn from each other and he has his countries of uh, which he calls arc arc i think he has about eight or nine in there we have a list of uh, several uh, they're not all countries california as a state uh, ontario soon victoria australia so there's uh, there's a, enough of us i think now that uh, we better we better make it happen this time because this might be the last chance so that's uh, and uh, I, I would end almost with that, but also saying uh, I'd be very happy to keep in touch with you periodically in the next 24 months, for example, as this unfolds, because we will be producing new knowledge. You will be producing new things, and we should really connect on that agenda. Spotify, Apple, Google, We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leadership Academy podcast. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts and never miss an episode.